1999, NASA built and launched a very special spacecraft. Now, NASA is always building spacecraft, but this one is unusual because this one was intended to go out and to come back. Most of the probes that NASA builds and sends out, they go, they travel on their mission and they broadcast their data back to Earth via radio waves. And then they either just shut down or they crash them. Um, some of them just keep going and going and going. In 1977, NASA launched two probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And they had limited missions to explore a couple of planets, but when that mission was over, they just kept going. Uh, both of them have even passed outside the solar system, and they keep broadcasting data back to Earth. So most of the time when they build a probe and they send it up, it just goes and goes and goes. It sends back some data, but they never see it again. This probe was different. It was called Stardust, and its job was to travel out and to intercept a couple of comets. And when it was out there, it would collect dust from the comets as they traveled through space and uh, bring them bring the dust back to Earth. So uh, in 2006, the, the ship, after traveling billions of miles over the course of seven years, its uh, container of interstellar material landed in the Utah desert and was collected by scientists. So the process of sending this probe out must have felt very different for the scientists. They're used to sending them and knowing that they'll never see them again. But this one, even though it was a long route over many, many miles and many, many years, they knew that in the end they would see the uh, Stardust probe again. I wonder if the feeling that those scientists felt might not have been similar to God's experience in creating the universe. Long, long ago, there was nothing but God, and the limitlessly powerful God spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. And before he did that, before he made this creation, he knew that the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, the, the beings that he created in his own image that, that would be like him in so many ways, that he created to love him and to know him and to be the object of his love. He knew that they would wander away from him, that they would reject him through sin, that they would turn against the God who made them. And he also knew that uh, he would reach into history, uh, first with Abraham and his descendants, creating a people for himself, and then ultimately sending his own son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to become one of us, so that we could be brought back to himself and that the end result of this the end result despite uh pain and pain on his own part uh offering his own son as a sacrifice uh the pain that his creation would experience not just humans but creation itself groaning in travail waiting for the redemption to come but he knew that at the end of this that there would be redemption that a people out of this world would be set apart for himself to be his followers, to, to, to worship him, to love him, and to honor him. And that one day there would be a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth where perfection reigned and his people would be there with him. So I have to wonder if it maybe felt similar to him uh, with, with Stardust sending it out, knowing it was going to go through dark places, dark and cold places, uh, over a long period of time, but that eventually it would come back. 
the experience must have been similar for God, creating the universe, knowing that it was going to go away from him by its own choice, go through dark and terrible places, but eventually at least part of a cre the creation would come back to him and there would be perfection in the end. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about this end time when all of creation will come back to himself and, and everything will be placed under him. And he describes it in this hierarchical way. It's not just everything coming back to God all at once. It's everything coming back in, in, in a proper order, one thing under another, under another, under another, until everything is under God. And he's talking here about the resurrection. He says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So Jesus was the first human being to be resurrected. Other people had been raised from the dead, like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But this was a raising, not a resurrection. They're different things. Lazarus, when he came to life again, it was in his old human body with all the same problems a human body in this broken world has. He aged, he sinned like all of us, and eventually he died again. When Christ was raised, it was to an incorruptible, immortal body. This is the promise of the Christian faith that one day all people who have trusted in Jesus will be resurrected, immortal, and incorruptible. So Jesus was the first, though. So in verse 21, Paul says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. So here's the focus of this little passage here, that there's an order to this. Christ the first fruits. after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So when Christ comes, all who belong to Jesus will be raised from the dead. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So Paul is saying here, the kingdom of Christ is growing. More and more people are coming to know him. And everything in creation over time is, is coming to uh, be under the authority of Christ. And when he comes, anything that remains in rebellion will be put into subjection. So everything, whether human, animal, nature, everything will come under the rule of Christ. And when everything in the universe is properly ordered under Christ, then Christ will hand the kingdom to God the Father, and everything will be under God. So he goes on uh, in verse 27, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he's accepted who put all things in, subjected, in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So he's describing this return to God in this hierarchical fashion, with one thing submitting to another, and then that thing submitting to another, and so on and so forth. So this is the model by which all things will be placed under God's authority. So in this case, the whole world under Christ and Christ submitting that the world uh, to God the Father. This is important because as we've been reading Peter's first letter 
in the verses that we've been looking at recently, Peter's been talking a lot about this idea of submission, about voluntarily submitting yourself to someone else's authority and obeying. And one of the places he talks about, um, he talks about slaves submitting to their masters, even to masters that are cruel or unfair. He talks about human beings in general submitting to governmental authorities, even ones that are cruel or capricious or, or unfair. So this idea of submission involves voluntarily submitting your will, your desires, your preferences to someone else. And it's important as we're talking about this to have in mind what we were talking about about the beginning, about one day the whole universe being in a hierarchy of submission to God. So when we are talking about this idea of voluntarily submitting ourselves to other authorities, what we're doing is we are mirroring that future kingdom that's coming. The kingdom of God is already here. It's been established, but at one point in time, when Christ comes, it will be universal. It will fill every square inch of the cosmos. Everything will be ordered properly under God. So when we today, in this world that isn't fully by choice submitted to God, when we choose to submit to proper authorities, we are modeling or mirroring that future kingdom. And when we do that, we're doing a couple of things too. One is we're worshiping God. By choosing to conform ourselves to that future kingdom that's coming, we are declaring that future kingdom that God is creating to be worthy of, of our emulation. So we're saying God's plan is best when we submit. But we are also, in addition to worshiping God, we're doing something else. We are also evangelizing. Now, this is not a full picture of evangelism, but it is a component of evangelism. So when we model the way the universe is supposed to function and the way it will function one day in this coming kingdom, when we do that before the world that doesn't know God, we are declaring the glories of God to those people. So this submission, it's, it's critically important, not just to our own lives, but it's important to our relationship with God, and it's important with our relationship to the unbelieving world that doesn't know God. So let's start by reading through the verses in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're going to look at today, and then talk about what they mean, and then how to apply them to our lives today. I'll be showing the verses on the screen in the New American Standard Version, um, but you can follow along in, of course, whatever Bible translation you prefer. So Peter begins, and again, this is chapter 3. We're starting with verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, 
just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Why don't we start our discussion of these verses by dispensing with the elephant in the room? Aren't these verses just sexist and outdated? Well, to be honest, I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about this, because this objection sort of operates under the idea that the beliefs about gender and sex and sin and morality that are held by American culture in the early 21st century are somehow the default truth and that everything else must be judged by how well they match up with these. We see this all the time when people are judging people from the past by how well they meet modern standards of morality. But we're Christians, and we know the world is wrong about all sorts of things. So we're going to start instead with the default assumption that God and his word are true, and so the culture has to be measured, not the other way around. So we don't judge God's word by the culture, we judge the culture by God's word. And God's word, let's be honest, it's full of difficult teachings. The idea that wives should submit to their husbands is by no means the largest of these hard sayings. The Bible teaches that we should forgive our enemies, that we should pray for people who persecute us, that the poor are rich, that the least among us are the greatest, that if you want to become great, that you should become the servant of all. So nothing about genuinely following Christ is simple and easy when judged through the lens of 21st century America. None of it, in fact, makes very much sense at all. But that's okay. In fact, the fact that it makes no sense makes a lot of sense. God said that he used the foolishness of this world to shame the wise, that he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame those that are strong, so that no one can brag to God. So that's really all I want to say about whether it's controversial to say that wives are to submit to their husbands. The Bible says it. God teaches it. It's not controversial. The world and its broken ideas about gender and love and relationships, that's what's controversial. But I do want to deal with a couple of false ideas that are sometimes float around or come up in people's minds when we discuss the idea specifically of scriptural teaching about uh, marriage relationships and women submit or wives submitting to husbands. And I, my slip of the tongue brought up the very first one there. It says that wives are sub to submit to their husbands in scripture. It does not say that women in general are to submit to men. That's not the idea here at all. Um, so it's talking about marital relationships here. Secondly, it says that wives are to submit their, themselves to their husbands. It doesn't say that husbands are to subjugate their wives. 
Remember from what we talked about last Sunday, submission is a voluntary process, not something that be, can be compelled or even something that we should try to compel. And thirdly, nothing about the process of a godly wife submitting to her husband should ever be construed to imply that women should stay in abusive situations if they're able to get free of them. Last week we discussed what Peter said or what Jesus said about persecution. He said when we fall into persecution, we should count it as a great joy because God will reward us when we suffer for him. But he also said that if you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. So if we have the option of getting out from under a situation of persecution without sinning ourselves, then we should. Okay, with that business out of the way, what can we say about the focus of these verses? Well, at the end of chapter 2, there were verses focusing on people in general submitting to government authorities. It also talked about servants submitting to their masters. These verses are focused on one particular group of people, husbands and wives. So let's say you're not a married person. Either you're a kid, too young to be married, or maybe you're an adult of marriageable age but just aren't married yet. Or maybe you're a widow or a widower or even a single divorced person. Why do these verses matter to you? Well, a quick and easy answer is that it's God's word and all of God's words matter to every human being. A second answer is that if you're young, if all goes well, one day you'll be older. And statistics tell us that you will likely end up married someday. Even those who were once married but no longer are often find themselves married again. And even those who will never be married or be married again, they need to understand this because they might counsel those who were married and support and encourage them, but also because the marriage relationship, whether you're part of one or not, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. The scripture says that God gave marriage as symbolic of that relationship. So it's just another of the avenues by which we might more understand the Lord who loves us and made us. All right, so let's look at Peter's instructions for wives first and then his instructions for husbands. First off, um, I know we've used that word submit a lot, but Peter's actually given three separate instructions to wives and he's given a reason for it. So verses one and two give that first instruction and the reason for all of these instructions. So he says in the same way, and he's referencing back to servants, not saying that wives are servants or that they're slaves or, or property of their husbands, but that their submission should be in the same way, a kind of voluntary submission to uh, someone who's in authority, not necessarily because they deserve to be in authority or have the qualities that should be present in someone in an authority position, but because of uh, showing honor to Christ and as a witness to the truth of the gospel. So in that same way, as servants are able to worship God through their submission, wives also are to be submissive to their husbands. And then he gets, says, so that that's the indicator that uh, Peter's giving a reason. Um, so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, in other words, even if any of them are not Christians, uh, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they, meaning the husbands, observe your chaste 
and respectful behavior. So that chaste there refers to sexual morality, faithfulness, and respectful respectfulness. That's really, in a nutshell, what uh, Peter's talking about with submission. He's not talking about uh, being uh, walked all over by the other person, uh, but showing respect, showing love um, in, in that respect respect, and with the chasteness, showing faithfulness to that person. The goal is this, that if you have a husband who is not a believer, and Peter is not telling women that it's okay to marry a woman who is, uh, marry a, a man who's not a believer, but women back then often didn't have a say in who they were allowed to marry. Um, often a woman would be compelled through an arranged marriage to marry, marry someone who wasn't a believer, or, um, a woman who was an unbeliever in, mar in marriage to an unbeliever became a believer herself. So in in these situations, the, the woman might find herself to someone married to someone who, who has rejected Christ. And in those circumstances, she is to model the gospel by her behavior uh, to show what a life with Christ looks like how it is different from a life uh, apart from Christ. So to make the gospel attractive and appealing. So along with the reason in order to win over their husbands to Christ, Peter also gives the first uh, instruction to be submissive to their husbands. In verse three and four, he gives the second instruction. He says, your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So he's saying here um, that women, it's not that they should not be concerned about external appearances or that anyone shouldn't be concerned about those things, but that isn't the focus. The focus in a marriage Peter says, is not on making yourself attractive, but making Christ attractive. And that we do that not with the outward appearance, uh, but with uh, the inner spiritual beauty. He talks about uh, a gentle and quiet spirit. And these are things that are beautiful and that uh, make Christ appealing, not just in wives, but in women in general, men in general, human beings uh, who are followers of Christ, make him attractive by those things. There's kind of a trend in the Christ, or at least some parts of the Christian world today, that to make Christ attractive to the world, we need the world to see that coming to Christ makes you happy, it makes you wealthy, it makes you powerful, it makes you attractive, it makes you healthy, it gives you all these things. The Bible says something very, very different. It says that we will not make Christ alluring by showing all the shiny things that we get from being Christians. That will only make people interested more and more in those shiny things. It won't make them drawn to Christ. So we as Christians are to make much of Christ. We're to highlight him, we're to call people's attention to him, show people the glory of Christ so that he will be appealing to them, not so that we will be. So Peter's telling these women, 
uh, it's not a command that you should not to do any of these things concerned with external appearances, but that our focus, our primary focus, should be on making Christ appealing through our um, through our attitudes and through um, through our our spiritual demeanor. So Peter has said that wives should make Christ appealing through their submission and through their spiritual beauty. And in verses five and six, Peter closes out this section by um, mentioning great examples of this in past times. He says in verse five, for in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. In the latter part of verse six, he gives a third thing that wives can do in a marriage in order to make much of Christ and make Christ appealing and beautiful. He says, if you, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened or by any fear. So he says, a wife that is fearless is a wife that can communicate the gospel with her life. What does that mean? Does that mean, you know, bungee jumping and, you know, rock climbing, things like that? No, nothing like that. What it's talking about here is not being, you know, afraid of just, you know, the normal things of life. He's talking about being unafraid of um, the things that the world fears. Uh, a Christian fears certain things normally. A Christian fears, you know, what it will feel like to put your hand on the hot stove or uh, what it might be like to trip and fall if you're carrying things down the stairs. Not, of course, living in terror of those things, but wisely guided by an awareness of the negative consequences of some of these things. What a Christian doesn't fear that the world fears are things like death. A Christian doesn't fear those things because a Christian knows that they're temporary, that there's an eternal life waiting for them. A Christian doesn't fear what the government can do to you. A Christian doesn't fear the mockery of the the crowd. A Christian doesn't fear being canceled. A Christian doesn't fear uh, being alone. A Christian doesn't fear those things because Christ is with her. Christ is with him. And those things simply cannot harm a Christian anymore the way they used to harm people in the world. So when uh, a wife communicates this with her life, uh, freedom from fear and worry, she's communicating the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, a person should never ever feel any of those things. Those are normal human emotions. But the Christian, whether a wife or just a Christian in general, makes their decisions based on what is true, not based on those emotions. So Peter's given three things for wives here uh, to be submissive to their husbands. In other words, to uh, put his needs ahead of her own, to put his desires ahead of her own. Um, he's, Peter says that um, women should... have spiritual beauty on the inside rather than focusing solely on external appearances and that women should live fearlessly without the the fears and the worries that uh consume the world 
If she does those things, she is modeling the gospel for an unbelieving husband. But not just for an unbelieving husband. If she does these things for a believing husband, she's modeling the gospel for the unbelieving world around them. So it's a form of worship and it's a form of evangelism. In verse 7, Peter turns his attention to husbands. Peter begins his instructions for husbands in an interesting way. He says, you husbands in the same way. Remember, that's how he began his instructions for wives in the same way. And when he began those instructions for wives, it was referencing servants obeying their masters, that same kind of submission. When he So the instructions for wives were to submit in the same way that a servant submits to a master. Now, husbands in the same way. He's saying that husbands need to do this thing that he's about to tell them to do with the same attitude that a wife submits to her husband or that a servant submits to a master. So that's very interesting. We'll come back to that in just a minute. He says, what should they do? They should live with your wives in an understanding way. This means having compassion for your wife, being gentle with her, uh, understanding the kind of things that, that she's going through, understanding the kind of things that help her, being supportive of her. And he says, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, uh, again, you know, just to give a slight nudge to the culture's idea that this is controversial, um, but it shouldn't be. Peter here is talking about physical strength. Um, there are... I'd have to say there are innumerable studies that show that men are physically, on average, men are physically stronger than women. It's not the case in every particular instance. There are women who are much physically stronger than I am. And, uh, uh, but on average, you know, it, it's known and it's not something that the average person needs a study in order to know. Uh, physical strength is not the only way in which a person can be strong. There's obviously emotional strength, intellectual strength. Um, women on average live much longer than men. Uh, I think that's a, a form of strength. Um, women have higher pain tolerance than men. So Peter's not saying in every possible way women are weaker than men, but he's talking about physical strength. And this is important to his point because Peter is telling her to submit. He's telling him to do something in light of her submission live with her in an understanding way as someone weaker. He's saying you likely have the physical power to impose your will upon your wife. Don't do it. So you notice he doesn't say wives submit, husbands dominate, husbands command. He in fact gives no instructions to husbands to in any way in terms of telling your wife what to do. He says to live with her in an understanding way, not forcing your will upon her. So if a wife is submitting to her husband and saying, I will accept my husband's will when we disagree, but it doesn't command a husband to command a wife. And in fact, it says to not force your will upon him. What does that look like for a husband? That means the job of the husband is to put his wife's needs first, not to compel his will upon her, but to find out, to discover what she needs and to make those things happen. It's a very, very different view of uh, male-female relationships that exist in the world today. It's a very different 
view of male-female relationships that existed in the first century when Peter was writing these words. He says to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now, the New Testament says that men and women are ontologically equal. In other words, by nature, men and women are equal in the eyes of God, one neither better or more important than the other. Uh, they're fellow heirs. They're, they're equal in the eyes of God. There aren't different tiers in the Christian faith. The elders aren't better in any way than the, the lay, the ordinary church members. The husbands aren't better than their wives. Uh, if we want to go so far as to look back to chapter two, masters aren't better than their servants and government leaders aren't better than the populace. Um, so Peter is saying the two are equal ontologically. This idea of submission does not denote one being less in any way than the other. And Peter gives a reason for this, which is very different than the reason he gave to wives. He told the wives to submit to their husbands so that the husbands might be one to Christ. He says, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding, a gentle, compassionate manner so that your prayers will not be hindered. You do a, a, a service to yourself if you studied the Bible and looked for that concept of things hindering prayers or God not listening to prayers. This is one. It says, if you're a husband and you are not living with your wife in a gracious, compassionate, and understanding way, it's interfering with your relationship with God. And it's something that needs to be fixed in order to mend that relationship. So as we read Peter's words, his, these instructions, not just to husbands and wives, but the ones who come next to Christians in general, the ones that came before to servants and, and to uh, people under government authority, let's remember who he is writing to. He's writing not just advice to the world, general ways that culture should work. He's writing to Christians. And remember, he addresses Christians as sojourners travelers, temporary residents passing through a land. So we that's what we are. We are, we're pilgrim, pilgrims, like in the old days, uh, traveling to a very special destination, a wonderful destination, the most wonderful destination possible. That is being reunited in the presence of God for all eternity. And as we pass through this land, this foreign land, we're passing among foreigners too. And we want more than anything else for these foreigners who are permanent residents of the dark and terrible land they live in to pull up stakes and join us, to follow with us on a journey to that amazing destination. So to do this, we want to make Christ appealing. And we do that in every area of our life, not just by communicating the verbal truth of the gospel. It's important and necessary that we actually, with words, tell people the truth about sin and forgiveness and Christ's atonement, how he died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, what it means to have faith in Jesus, to receive him as your Lord, and that by that, God saves us, not by our good works, which you know, to him are, he says, oh, you're like filthy rags. They can't buy anything from God for us. Instead, 
Christ saves us as his own sovereign act for those who have faith. So we need to use words to communicate these truths to people. But by the way we live our lives, by modeling our lives after that future kingdom that's coming, where, for one thing, where we are in authority and we submit, and by our submission we worship God and we communicate that truth. So when we live our lives this way, in our relationships with each other and in our relationships with unbelievers, we make Christ attractive. Not everyone will respond to that, but some will. So, let's remember that there are more important things than our rights. Our rights exist, and they are important, but there are more important things than our rights. There are more important things than getting our way. There are more important things that our will being done. And some of those more important things are people who may spend eternity in the presence of God because of the way we lived here on earth.